Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. Today on Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Frank reflects on the second Sunday of Advent and then on the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. After that, we'll discuss the lives of two great saints, Ambrose of Milan and Francis Xavier, both of whose feast days are this week. Hey, did you know that you could take Veritas Catholic Network with you wherever you go? All you have to do is download the Veritas Catholic Network app. Then you can listen to the live broadcast 24 hours a day. You can grab podcasts of our shows like Let Me Be Frank and also like Restless and more. It's right there at your fingertips on your phone. Download the Veritas Catholic Network app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or you can visit www.veritascatholic.com. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank, everybody. It is my pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Well, my friend, it's my pleasure to be with you. I, I enjoy our conversations very much. It's like therapy. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I get a lot out of them, and I know the listeners do. We get emails and, and, and postings all the time. So, uh, you know... <laughs> And there's a lot going on. Um, before we dive into today's conversation, Excellency, mm-hmm. we never had a chance to kind of uh, get your your take on how the USCCB General Assembly went. I know you were nervous that it was going to, you know, about its online. Yeah, you know what? Actually, it was very um, efficient. We got a tremendous amount done in half the time. Hmm. And when you consider there was no travel, it really was, um, they really did an excellent job of organizing it. And and many of the presentations were, were taped prior, mm-hmm. but they were still very good. Uh, I think it's a bit stilted, this medium, to, to have actual conversation, right? Because yeah. you just basically, you're giving a reflection, but you're not conversing one with the other because you can't. Right. Right. At least not with 200 and how many, 300, whatever people there were on the call. You can't do that. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, it was it worked out far better than I thought it would have. And the right? side conversations that you said that yeah, were usually... The, they, yeah, they didn't exist. Yeah. They didn't exist. But, but the committee meetings do. See, now, like Committee for Evangelization and Catechesis, the subcommittee on the catechism, I'm on the committee um, against uh, racism... Uh, then you're small enough that you could have that conversation. So actually, I prefer it now. I'm becoming more of the convert to prefer it this way. Wow. And the reason I say that is because the more I do not travel, the more I do not wish to travel. Yeah. Amtrak and Acellas and planes and I, I, you know, it's been what, eight, nine months, 10 months, and I don't miss that at all. Yeah. Maybe that's being a little selfish on my part, but I just, I think I get a lot more done. I think a lot of people are feeling that way. I have a a very good friend who's uh, an attorney who travels all the time for work. In the past nine months, he's been home every night for dinner and he said, you know, he hopes it never goes back to the way it was before. Yeah, and and work is still getting done. Yes. The, the difficulty is the isolation. That's why, you know, when children go remote, fully remote, it's very isolating. Yeah. And therefore, it can be deformative in the long term. But for adults, 
I mean, in a perfect world, it's a hybrid so that you have some time, you know, on your own getting work done and other times you're with people. So who knows what the future holds? Right now, we just have to pray that these vaccines come online and are effective and safe. Um, I think AstraZeneca and the Oxford vaccines are only 70% effective from the, the news I recently saw. So, I mean, and then we put this thing behind us. My gosh. Yes, please, God. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, one other thing. Um, this mm-hmm. upcoming Sunday is going to be the second Sunday of Advent. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. Uh, your, your well, thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think uh, Advent um, is the season that features, to a great extent, John the Baptist who figured prominently in the early church. In fact, we're going to be talking about the Immaculate Conception Our Lady, who's very dear to my heart. But in the early church, Mary did not figure as prominently as John the Baptist. Hmm. Um, that only developed later. And um, because the voice of prophecy, as understood in the Old Testament, very much animated the ancient church. Yeah. Right? Because it was the fulfillment of the longing of Israel to have a Messiah who would bring a kingdom. So uh, so I, I, um, I personally find him to be fascinating, spiritually fascinating, because I don't imagine him to be cuddly <laughs> and socially polite or politically correct for that matter. Yeah. Right? So he's a man after my heart, right? Say it like you gotta say it, say it so that it's understood and yep. let the pieces fall where they are, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, so this portion of Lent is about that. As we shift then towards the latter part, I'm sorry, of Advent, we shift in the latter portion of Advent, then the focus is, of course, on Our Lady because she is the vehicle, the instrument for the incarnation to break into, into creation. Yes. Right? And that leads us perfectly into today's topic which is Mm -hmm. the uh beautiful feast next tuesday of the immaculate conception so beautiful but badly misunderstood yes that's i was going to ask could you please start by saying what is the immaculate conception okay so the immaculate conception is the dogmatic belief we have as catholic christians that states that mary was conceived by an extraordinary act of grace um, that in some way was um, a foretelling, foreshadowing, a, a foregift of even the, the redemption that comes with her son, that allowed her to be conceived without original sin, so that she would be, if I could use the phrase of St. Irenaeus, the new Eve out of which salvation could break into creation. Right? And if we remember, we had that conversation many months ago, Original sin is the original fall of Adam and Eve that is passed on to their descendants. It is, fundamentally, it is that disposition we have that comes to us, concupiscence, Mm -hmm. that we value our own position above all others. In other words, it is ultimately taking God's place, which is what Adam and Eve attempted to do with great failure. So, having said all that, we also recognize that Mary remained sinless through her whole life. St. Bonaventure constantly reminded his his listeners because 
she was not only the worthy vessel, but she had to be the worthy companion and formator of, of the Lord Jesus in his humanity. So it's a lesson for parents to think about because a parent, a, um, a mother and father do not simply give birth to a child, but they accompany the child. And their witness and example helps mold and form the child. So for Our Lady in particular, she accompanied her son ultimately to his death, but as when he was an infant and a boy and, a, you know, and then eventually a young man. So she remained sinless for her deep faith in the Father, her fidelity and her perseverance, her courage, cooperating with the grace she received, but it was always with her free will after her birth that she remained sinless. And it was always in service in part, in part, in service to her son, right? So it's a beautiful... So the Immaculate Conception is her conception in the womb of St. Anne, her father being St. Joachim, without sin. Now, was tremendous controversy in the life of the Church. Controversy because it is not directly found in sacred scripture. Okay? And therefore, when it's not found in sacred scripture, up to, right, the, the middle of the 20th century, right, um, there has been controversy even in Catholic circles. But when, in 1854, when Pius IX promulgated the dogma, he made it very clear that it is clearly implied in sacred scripture. And for those who read sacred scripture with the eyes of faith can see the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in there, particularly in the book of Revelation. But a dogma, a dogmatic definition, does not have to solely and completely rely on an explicit reference in sacred scripture, right? because the tradition is a living tradition and spirit is there inspiring the magisterium and the bishops always to affirm the truth. So that controversy, even into the middle of the 20th century, people going around and around and around. And, but I think now there is complete, there is, I think among those who are aspiring to profess the fullness of Catholic faith, there is no question, okay, whether it's among the faithful or the hierarchy, or even among theologians, the Immaculate Conception is a defined dogma, period. So, so then, just to be clear then, when the Pope, so in this example, Pius IX, mm -hmm. declares the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, he's not creating that. Correct. Right, correct. He is not creating anything. He is defining what was already there. From okay. the beginning. Now, correct. Now, for yes. example... It's interesting that an act of papal, uh, literally, infallibility, right? So he consulted the bishops of the world. I think almost 90% of them responded enthusiastically to this. So there is, the people of God had honored Our, Our Lady in her Immaculate Conception for centuries and centuries and centuries. So there's the census fidelium. So there was unanimity one could say, among the church, in the church, to this. But it was never formally declared, even though it was liturgically observed and it was in the spirituality and prayer of the people. So it's nothing new, but it's clearly defined now. Right. Right? Okay. Okay. And when you clearly define something, you always raise opposition. So yes. our Protestant brothers and sisters, even the Orthodox, 
by the Orthodox reverence, they revere Mary, but they would they do not believe that this is a defined dogma because it calls into question, it raises the question of papal authority to do this, mm. which is a sticking point to many, right? So, but there is a theological controversy here, right? In the Middle Ages, like St. Thomas was involved with the rest, and that is how was Mary conceived immaculately? Because the general thought was that the inheritance of original sin came somehow, in some way, through the act of creating the life, through the act of the sexual intercourse that created the life, in some sense. Because it's the only thing that holds everyone in common, right? It's the only, it, it, that applies to every human being. That's how we originate, except one, right? Who's not a human being, he's a divine person. That's yes. the difference. But, but Our Lady is a human person. And there is a pious tradition about Joachim and Anne at the gate of Jerusalem uh, kissing each other, and that was the moment of conception, which is a pious legend, right? Right. So my response to those great theological controversies that took off for centuries and centuries is very kind of like a simple response, and that is, that is in the mind of God. I, I don't, we don't necessarily have to explain the how, because that presumes a level of pride on our part that we could define the how of even Jesus's incarnation into right. the world. Yeah. We know the, Our Lady was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Where did he get the DNA? That's God's business, right? God can do all things. So I'm, I, I don't think spending time on that is time well spent, but in the Middle Ages, it really did cause a lot of discussion and controversy and, you know, how Catholic theologians can be sometimes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Even the no. saints. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I want to just go back to something that you said earlier, Excellency, because mm -hmm. um, I think many of us could definitely benefit from um, a little more explanation of this idea that, uh, you know, e Eve's sin led to the death of all people. And so now Mary is the new Eve. Right. Right. It's, it's a beautiful image, beautiful, from the patristic era of the church. St. Irenaeus speaks of knots, right? That uh, the first Eve, through her fall and the fall of Adam, created knots that had to be untangled, right? knots that held humanity in literally slavery slavery to, to concupiscence, slavery to death and the effects of it all. So someone had to come and untie those knots. And so that is the new Eve to be conceived in a way that freed her from the inheritance of Adam and Eve. It's no different than you use the image of a garden, right? So Adam and Eve were in the garden, pristine, and they lost it. Okay, Mary became, if you will, the fertile soil, a new soil into which the incarnation could come, which would then allow the Son of God made man to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Calvary to go into the Garden of the Resurrection. And we are one day going to go into the Garden of Everlasting Life. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful spiritual narrative 
that in my mind is very, very inspiring, right? Yeah. And it elevates the role of Our Lady because Our, Our Lady is, well, in my humble opinion, and of course, this is only an opinion. It's not dogmatic, it's not defined. But she's the first among equals among the saints. Okay. I know St. Paul and St. Peter and the apostles are towering figures. This I understand. But Our Lady is, uh, she is, if she had said no, where would we be? Where would we be? Now, had God foreseen her yes? Of course he had. Of course he did. But still free. Yeah. So the Immaculate Conception gave her the ability, in a sense, because she was freed from the. But still, nonetheless, she had freedom. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's amazing. When I lived in Rome, you know, the Pope on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception goes to the Spanish Steps, and there's a beautiful statue of Our Lady, and he goes, and they offer a prayer service there, and prayers, and Our Lady is the patroness. She's one of the protectors of Rome, right? And I must confess, I went once, because you got to go through security and people and all the rest of it. But you could see it on people's faces. You could see it on the faces of the little children. For me, as growing up, even before I went to Rome, growing up, this was the entree to Christmas, as we talked about a few weeks ago, right? Mm -hmm. You could see the deep abiding spiritual resonance in having a mother who is your protector and defender, your great guardian, right? Who will jealously, right, and absolutely come to your protection and aid when you need it, if you ask, right? And all of that was possible because of this singular grace that began her human life, right? Yeah. In the moment she was conceived in Anne's womb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me, this might be basic, uh, but, um, you know, why, why was it necessary that Jesus was born to a sinless mother? Why was it necessary? Well, because there could be no way the he who was sinless could enter into creation that was fractured and sinful if the vehicle was itself sinful. Hmm. It's one thing to believe, as we do in the kenosis, that God emptied himself freely of his divine glory and power to enter into human life, to enter into creation. But God cannot deny who he is. And he is the pure, the one, the sinless, the holy. He who is the truth, goodness, beauty itself. Hmm. So if he was to enter into creation, which he did, the means by which could not itself be tainted. Right. Right? How could that be? How, it could not fit. It could not be. It does not make sense. That's, yeah. So I think there's a basic logic there, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And so now even though Mary was sinless, she still needed a savior herself. Without a doubt. Oh, without a doubt. Without, and that's part of the controversy. See, the theological controversies between ourselves and our Protestant brothers and sisters, and even some of the earliest theologians, some of the controversy just simply came from the fact that they misunderstood 
or they over-exaggerated the nature of the singular grace Mary received as if having received it, she did not need her son. But in fact, it was given because of her son, in service of her son, which Mm. is her life. And therefore, it came in, um, one would say, in anticipation of the events of our salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No different than the Assumption and the other Marian beliefs we have. So, no, no, no. I think if it's the opposite. It's not that she doesn't need her son. It's she's illustrating the power of her son. Yeah. Right? And isn't it interesting? Was it not St. Bernadette? Right? What, how many years? 15, 20 years after the proclamation where Our Lady reveals herself as the? Immaculate Conception. Immaculate Conception. Yeah. And, and she would have had no knowledge of the Immaculate Conception. So don't you think that's the celestial affirmation? Yeah. That this is the truth? And, you know, what's interesting there is that she didn't say to Bernadette, I was immaculately conceived. She said, I am the Immaculate Conception. <laughs> so what does that mean to you, my friend? Tell me. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Excellency. <laughs> oh, I'm going to ask you first. <laughs> I knew that was coming, that question. <laughs> but what, it, 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 so, yeah, it, you, you've hit an important point. What does it say to you? What does it say to you? See, my friend, from my, from my perspective... We can look at our lives at things that happen to us or things we do, right? Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is, in this instance, that which was given to Our Lady as a grace is so fundamental to the very purpose of her existence, right? That it's not tangential, it's not incidental, it's not icing on the cake, it is the cake. She was, from the beginning of all creation, foreseen by God as the one who would allow the inbreaking of our redemption. Mm -hmm. So that is why, in my mind, it makes perfect sense to say that she is the Immaculate Conception, not that she happened to be immaculately conceived. It was who she was for why she existed. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And so, like you said, it's not something that just happened to her. It's something that she is, she participated in. Yeah. Yeah. For what other purpose would Our Lady have been conceived but for that purpose? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Beautiful. Which is quite an awesome thought. Mm-hmm. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Okay. So let's, uh, let's take a oh, quick Matt, break. Before here. we go, before oh, we yes. take a break, before we take a break, one more thing. Yes. Is, is she not the patroness of the United States? Is she? The Immaculate Conception? Ah. I believe so. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. And, I... and if that's the case, don't you think we need to pray to Our Lady's inter- intercession to help our country to move forward in, in the sad state that it is now? Yeah. Yeah. So this Immaculate Conception, my goodness, I mean, if there ever was a reason to turn to Our Lady for her help, it's now. For the sake of our country as well. Yeah. So get to Mass that day. Pray the rosary. Mm-hmm. 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 
Okay, thanks, Excellency. So we're gonna take a break, and when we come back, we've got two awesome saints feast days that uh, right around here we'll talk about. Great. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. All right, welcome back, everybody. Let me be frank, featuring Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, December 7th is the feast of the great St. Ambrose. Mmm. Great is an understatement. <laughs> yeah. It's an understatement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's I'm one, one of, of the four great doctors, right? The Western doctors of the church, right? Yes. Okay. Yep. It- Ambrose, Gregory, Jerome, and Augustine. We're talking... We're talking an exalted company there. Yeah. The best of the best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my guess is most people don't know anything about him. That yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, most people know something yeah. about the other three, Augustine, Jerome, and Gregory the Great. But if you ask them about Ambrose... Right. Yeah. Especially Augustine, because he had a racy life when he was young and... <laughs> And it's, you know, people like those sort of stuff, details and stuff. <laughs> but Ambrose was, I'm convinced, and the historic record, I think, proves, if, there, if Ambrose had not influenced Augustine, Augustine would not have ultimately come to conversion. Yeah. Ambrose baptized Augustine. Yes. And the interesting thing is, Augustine, in his pride and arrogance, had absolutely no regard for Christian preachers. Because remember, he was trained as a rhetorician, right? Yes. An orator. So Augustine had no regard for Christian. None. Except when he met Ambrose in Milan. Yeah. Then he began to pause and reflect. See, Ambrose, Ambrose, amazing, an amazing life. For example, for example, okay, he grew up in a relatively affluent, aristocratic home. Father and mother, right? He was trained for both uh, um, government service, and he was, in fact, a governor. Mm-hmm. And in the most unlikely act of grace, by popular demand of the people, he was nominated to become the Bishop of Milan. Now, wait a minute, now let's think for a moment. This man is not baptized. This man is not a Christian. But because he is so revered, that, and because he, the hope was he could bring healing to the church, which we'll get to in a second, right? they nominated him to be bishop, and so he had to be baptized, ordained a priest, and ordained a bishop, and installed as the Bishop of Milan in, I, I think, a week. <laughs> Now, let's think about that. Could you imagine doing that in the contemporary church? <laughs> Talk about the fast track. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, why? What's his seminal contribution? Oh, gosh, there are many. But one in particular I want us to think deeply about. 
because it is so pertinent to the life of the contemporary church. To understand Ambrose, we have to understand that in this time in the church's life, in the 370s, 80s, 90s, there was a huge battle, a fundamental theological battle, between what we will call the Arians and we will call, I'm going to call, those who are orthodox. Orthodox Mm -hmm. in the sense of hold the faith that was ultimately judged to be the true orthodox faith, right? And it revolved around the person of Jesus. So Arianism philosophically, as we talked about about three, four months ago, philosophically, by human reasoning, makes a tremendous amount of sense. Right. That, that therefore Jesus is the highest of all creation, but not God, because God can't be an equivalent to created reality. Right. He's not cons- consubstantial. Fa- correct. And the orthodox faith, the true faith, right, says, but this is a divine person because you cannot be saved by a created agent. So if we are saved, God saved us. And if God takes a human life through kenosis, it can be, just we talked about the Immaculate Conception. All right. So in this, so the church was fractured. And you'd have bishops coming in one camp, bishops coming in another camp. You would have emperors or their, their descendants in one camp and another camp deposing bishops here and there. I mean, you think we're a mess now. You, there's no concept of what a mess was until you look into the fourth century church. Yeah. And so when Milan, who, if I remember correctly, his predecessor was pro-Aryan. Yes. They were looking for someone who could do two things. And it's all about Ephesians 4, which you have heard me say over and over again, to live the profess the truth in love. That is, on one hand, to profess the truth but to do it in such a way that brings people into dialogue. And by the virtue of just the standing he had, his ability to preach, his ability to teach, to bring people along in charity and love to the truth, which is very different from saying, this is the truth, take it or leave it, go take a hike if you don't like it. Yeah. Right. Ambrose was not like that. So it was, it is, it, it, he in the early church recognizes that it's a false choice between professing the truth and healing division in the church. You can do both at the same time. Now, did he have tremendous success? He had some success, right? Because to convert hearts takes a long time. But that it can be done, he absolutely, without a doubt, demonstrates it can be done. And in the 21st century, I would like to suggest to our listeners, the time has come for us to do it again. Again. Hold to the truth, but don't use the truth as a bludgeon so that we separate each other without engaging people to try to help them understand why we believe what we believe and help them, accompany them to come to understand it themselves and embrace it in their lives. See, and... That much of Augustine rubbed off on, uh, that much of Ambrose rubbed off on Augustine too. Right? 
And Augustine, with the history of his own life, which was a mess morally for a long time, I mean, he understood. Didn't always follow through, but understood what the task was. And Ambrose was no wimp. I mean, Ambrose called the emperor to penance <laughs> for the massacre of 6,000 innocent people. And the emperor did months of public penance. This is the emperor. Wow. Theodosius. Okay. I mean, <laughs> so he was no pushover. Yeah. But on the other hand, he was very much a man who was a bridge. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost com completely foreign to the U.S. today. You know what? Let me say this, though. And then I have one other point that I'd like to make why I admire this man so much. Um, he did not have to contend with social media. <laughs> when, when the history of our age is written, you know, not to overstate it, you know, when the printing press was invented, civilization took a dramatic turn. And I think with the creation, the birthing of the digital continent, most especially our ways to communicate now, I think humanity has taken a shift, mm -hmm. right? Therefore, he did not have to contend with social media, which makes being like Ambrose that much more difficult because social media as we said many times, does not foster dialogue. It fosters tribalism. Yeah. Hmm? yeah. One of the things as you were talking that uh, occurs to me is that, you know, people today uh, look at the church, they look at the state of politics here, and they say, boy, it's never been worse. But when you oh think about, gosh, yeah, you think about the fourth century and the Arian oh heresy, it was... You know, bishops like Athanasius were chased out of his own diocese for long periods of time for fear of his life. And it was worse, right, Excellency? I mean, but oh. you had men like, yeah, you had men like Ambrose who rose to the occasion. And in times like that, that's when God elevates the great saints. Correct. But their greatness is not known in their age. Hmm. So we could look at Ambrose 16 and a half centuries later, and I can see all the things I said, but for his contemporaries, there may have been some awareness, but no sense, I don't think, yeah. of what he was trying to do and the effect it had. Yeah. And that's where, you know, I, I, I just, one of the things I hold very dear that I love to do is tell stories. And you tell stories not to entertain, but you tell stories to narrate history in a fuller way than a history that's just a narration of facts. Because in the end, to appreciate what you just said, that an earlier age could have been fraught with more challenges, whether it is, for example, in the patristic era, or in the Reformation era, you only appreciate the height and depth of the challenge when you hear the stories of how people had to live in it, through it. Right? Right. So to sit down and read the memoirs 
of Cardinal von Tuan when he was imprisoned, right, for his faith in our own, in the 20th century, gives rise to an understanding of what it was to be persecuted by a communist regime. Yeah. Same thing for Ambrose and Augustine in those days. What was the average Catholic Christian believer making of it when you would have an Arian bishop followed by uh, a, 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 what I'm going to say, a, a, an Orthodox conservative bishop followed by a semi-Arian? You talk about confusion in the faith. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the collateral damage that was created. I mean, the Reformation, I've told you this before. We, we've talked about this we should do a podcast on the Reformation to consider the fact that 80% of the church had become Protestant literally in the in a generation. Yeah. Could you imagine what the stories were of those those sacrifices and the confusion and the pain and the dislocation and the I mean so anyway, so the point is Ambrose's greatness was verified in the passage of history not necessarily in his own day. Hmm. Yep. Which may be true in our own age. Yeah. Hmm? But social media is something that we must reckon with. We need to baptize it so that it does not become a force in the hands of those who will do irreparable harm to the unity of the church. Yep. And society. Hmm? And society. Mm hmm I want to make sure Can we I say have... one other thing about yes. Ambrose? One more yes, thing? please. Okay. Because Ambrose is like one of my favorites. You know, there is an Ambrosian rite in Milan. Okay. It has its own distinct celebration of mass. And it is ancient. Huh. And it, it, and again, it illustrates for Ambrose his fundamental belief that the liturgy is a living reality that is meant to help the people of God to become united with the mystery of the sacrifice of Christ. It is not meant to be um, a rubric, a set of rubrics that is imposed as a discipline on people. Right. Now, do you need rules? Of course you need rules. But the liturgy is evolutionary in its, in its, in its character. So, again, for the contemporary world, where we're dividing into camps, and those camps are hardening. Ambrose said, "No, no, 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 no. You need to, you need to be in dialogue with each other because there's truth everywhere, and the liturgy is a living reality." Right? Yeah. So that's another lesson of Ambrose. Okay, enough of Ambrose because I can keep going on and on and on. <laughs> well, and that's really how uh, people should view the church and Catholicism, anyway, not as a set of rules. But as right. A, right. as a as a means to to develop your relationship with God, right? In the guard, remember guardrails. Yes. On the highway. Yes. Right. The guardrails. That's exactly right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and then tomorrow is the feast of the great Saint Francis Xavier. Oh. Hmm. So, and I'm sure you have, uh, you feel a, a certain tie to him because, you know, you went to a Jesuit high school. 
Yes, of course. And I, and when I lived in Rome, when I went to the Jesu, which I would go to confession in the Jesu because they spoke English. <laughs> and they weren't loud because at St. Saint, at Saint Peter's, the one confessor on the left-hand side that spoke English <laughs> did not understand what a whisper meant. Okay. So you either go early in the morning so that nobody was online or everybody knew your sins. <laughs> no way to, I said, I said, no more. That's it. It's enough. <laughs> so I used to go to the Jesu okay. <laughs> for confession. And there's Francis Xavier's forum. Yes. Opposite St. Ignatius. Yes. You know, and how many people realized that they were roommates? Yeah, in, in uh, university. In university. Yeah. Right? And Ignatius was older. And I forget who the third one was. There were three of them all together. And Ignatius converted the first <laughs> yeah. and had a tougher time with Francis Xavier. Because he too came from a, a noble family. He too came from education. He, you know. And, but then when he did get it, he became really one of the seven founders of the Jesuits, right? Yes. In, in 1534. Yeah. And, he's, and he is truly a missionary at heart. Right? In fact, if I remember correctly, in the Office of Readings for the Feast of Francis Xavier, there's that great line where he, he says he would love to go back to the universities and shake everybody up who are basically living a comfortable Christianity and come out into the missions and help people who were starving, right, to really encounter hope that's eternal and a message that can endure which he was at the front lines of doing in India, Japan, and China. India, Japan, and China. Yeah. In his travels. Right? So, l l before I let that point go, you know, my mother used to say, tell me the friends you have, and I will tell you the person you are, mm. you will become. Y your, your children are growing older now, right? They're yes. going to go away to college. Isn't it in some way a parent's greatest nightmare to say, who's going to be the roommate of my son or daughter? Yeah. When they go away? Yeah. Even in what I would say really excellent Catholic universities, because it's to the person, right? It's the person who comes. Yes. So in 1529, when they were together in university, what a blessing for Francis Xavier that he had Ignatius there. Yeah. Because the company he kept helped to create the company of the Society of Jesus. Yeah. And if there had been someone else, we would not be talking about a St. Francis Xavier necessarily. Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. was, was Francis Xavier even Catholic when he went to the University of Paris? I'm not sure he was. Or, or if no, he was, he wasn't... Uh, I, I honestly don't know yeah. that, the answer to that question. So you stumped me. I will find out, though. <laughs> I'll find out. And, and what did Ignatius say? Ignatius, oh, say Ignatius is another one of the greats in my mind. Yeah. When I die, if I make it to heaven, please, Lord, I make it to heaven. There's a whole slew of people. Well, I have eternity. A whole slew of people I'm going to sit down and talk to. Okay. And Ignatius is one of them because he kept telling Francis Xavier, Right? The line from scripture. What profit does a man show if he gains the whole world and loses himself in the process? Same yes. thing my spiritual director told me when I was in the seminary. I mean, it takes only one line of scripture to convert a heart. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
It's uh, and so I, from what I yeah, please. No, I was I was just gonna say um, you mentioned the Church of the Jesu, which uh, mm-hmm. uh, for the listeners, this is the Baroque Basilica in Rome, which is the mother church for the Jesuit order. Correct. It's incredible to walk into. Um, and not far from Piazza Venezia. So those who are tourists, when we can travel again, go back to Rome and you're in Piazza Venezia, when you go to the Corso Vittorio Emanuele, which is the main street, make a left, walk 10 minutes, you can't possibly miss the Jesu. It's right next to you, literally on the corner. Yes. And it is beautiful. And I'm sure Ignatius was not happy, was not happy from his place in heaven, not in the least. Because Ignatius specifically said he wanted to be buried in poverty. And what did they do? They built a magnificent church in time with the largest single piece of lapis lazuli in the world is over his tomb. So whoever built that would probably get an earful from Ignatius. (laughs) (laughs) And and as you mentioned, uh, there's a reliquary, reliquary there with Francis Xavier's right arm. So why did they put just his right his body is in uh india i believe but mm-hmm. why did they mm-hmm. put his right arm there in that reliquary well because um would that not have been the arm he would have baptized with yeah i mean remember the purpose of a missionary is to preach the good news it's all about the charisma now allow me a little feverino okay in the new directory on catechesis that was issued not long ago. It speaks of kerygmatic, right, catechesis. And kerygma is the proclamation of the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, period. Before you get to the Immaculate Conception, before you get to the saints, before you get to even the mystery of the Eucharist, the basic fundamental offer is right, to encounter the Lord and allow him to be the savior and redeemer of your life, which can happen as an infant, can happen as a child, can happen as an adult. It's an appropriation over a lifetime. And a missionary's goal is to proclaim the charisma to anyone who's wanting to listen. So now let me ask you this, raising up this towering figure of Francis Xavier are we not in the same place now? Are we not in the same place? In the secular, post-Christian world in which we live, I say, yes, we are. Yeah. Most people do not understand what Jesus has come to truly offer them. Yep. So maybe one day, my right arm, your right arm, others will be also, please God, right? A relic of a time when we rose in heroism to, to preach the charisma of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's, I'm realizing more and more recently that it's not that people uh, haven't been taught what the church teaches, the doctrines and things like that. It's that they don't believe what the church teaches. And, and f- for me, when I talk to people, it's less and less I'm, I'm talking to them about specific dogmas and things but it's going back to exactly to the charisma and the encounter and the reason that we're here well because could it possibly be that large swaths of the church clergy religious and laity do not mirror 
the love of Christ in the world. That they do not actually allow his presence to shine forth. I don't say there's a judgment. I just say there's an observation. Has the world not come to faith? People walking away because they've never effectively met Jesus Christ in us? Before we throw the kitchen sink at them, maybe we should wash our own face in the kitchen sink. Right? Yes. And take a good look and say, am I a compelling witness? If somebody met me, would they follow the person I follow? Or to say, the heck with that. I have enough problems. I don't need your problems. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And when you look at Christianity now, I mean, it's been reduced at times to humanitarian do-gooding. It's been reduced to a philosophy. To your point, it's reduced to a, a, a catechism of set rules and regulations that a person who does not believe in the Lord Jesus sees as an imposition. But all of that has to be in service of the Lord Jesus because then the rules are not an imposition. They're just ways to express your love. Yeah. And I can admit my sinfulness to you. I can admit that I am not a completely worthy witness to Jesus Christ and then walk with me so that we can both be repentant. We could both see conversion. I'm not coming as your superior. I'm coming as your servant. Right? Yeah. That's what Paul talks about. Right? I'm the least among the apostles. Mm-hmm. If anybody knew my history, they'd throw me out, but I'm still here. See, true humility is absolutely essential for the conversion of people of goodwill. Francis knew that. Francis Xavier knew that. He knew yeah. that. Yeah. Can, uh, so Francis Xavier and Ignatius of Loyola uh, and the Society of Jesus, there's this, there's this, um, there's an important um, thing that they uh, created, and it's Ignatian spirituality. Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell us a little bit what is you know you hear that phrase a lot? What is Ignatian spirituality? Well, I mean, it is it is every every saint, all right, incarnates it, it lives out, makes concrete his or her faith in a way that you could identify like, like charisms and you could identify, right, um, a certain path that allowed them to enter into holiness of life. And my understanding of a nation's spirituality, and we can talk about this in other, is it's very much based in discernment. It's rooted in the discernment and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. It's very much scripturally based. So, Ignatian spirituality invites you in the discernment of spirit to encounter the person of Jesus. And, and the privileged way to do that is in scripture itself. And Ignatius in many ways recaptures the inner senses that St. Thomas spoke about that we've now lost, including imagination. So you put yourself into the scriptural story to gain a greater appreciation of what is being revealed and what is the Lord saying to you personally. Right? So it is, it is academic in the sense that there's content. It's intellectual because there's content. But it's also affective too. There's an affective piece to it. 
that we have lost in many cases. For some people, Steve, my friend, a concept inspires them. My experience has been most people, okay, you need to touch their hearts to inspire them to action. Mm -hmm. And the Lord Jesus enters through all three, the mind, the heart, and the will. So we could talk about Ignatius. Okay, we could do a much more fuller discussion and, yeah. and I could do more homework on it, certainly, but... No, but that's a good, that's a good uh, explanation for, for all of us. Um, I love this idea and it's, you know, my oldest son went to a Jesuit high school, as you did, Excellency. Mm -hmm. And this idea that pervades all, it looks like, all Jesuit schools where there's this idea of being men for others. Yes, yes. Yes. And, uh, and of course, why are you men for others? Ad maiorum dei gloriam. Always to the greater glory of God. That makes that which Ignatius asked more than humanitarian. It, it was eternal. Right? It's eternal. And when I went to Regis, that was beaten into us. Figuratively, of course, it was beaten into us, okay, over and over again. Ad maiorum dei gloriam. You know, it's a great litmus test for anybody, any believer. What am I doing? What I am doing now, is it for the greater glory of God or not? And if it's not, don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. Right. Yep. Right. Also, Frank Xavier, by the way, is the patron saint of the missions. Makes sense. Right? So... On his feast day, we should pray for missionaries that are still active throughout the world under very st difficult circumstances. Yeah. That they be protected and their work bear fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Such a cool order, historically. It, you know, the intellectual, spiritual, the black robes, mm -hmm. the militaristic yeah. uh, ideals. Yeah. And their fourth vow, right? Their fourth vow is obedience to the Pope in, in, among Jesuits. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Poverty, chastity, obedience, and obedience to the Pope. Okay. Okay. Let's take a break. What else and, do you want uh, to talk about, my friend? Let's, <laughs> let's keep going. <laughs> well, we need to take a break. We're overdue. And we'll come back on okay. the other side. Why do we need Catholic radio? Because not everybody's sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic Radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question and answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology. I myself, as a priest, am always learning. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, it's my fault we ran long. Um, I wanted to save the listener question for another day and instead ask you because uh, the COVID situation is starting to um, get a little scary again. And so mm -hmm. I just wanted to maybe ask you for mm -hmm. some words of peace or, or something. Yeah, I think it, it certainly is. I mean, if you look at the country, it, um, the trends are not good. And when you consider the fact that the spike in some parts of the country that we have seen now in November are a consequence of Halloween and how people conducted themselves in Halloween, and how we now have the Thanksgiving holiday and the aftermath and Christmas and New Year's, we are not going in the right direction. This is where I gain consolation. 
The first is, we are in a fundamentally different place than we were in March. Fundamentally different because we now understand what the virus is. We understand how it works and how one can contract it. We're also in a different place because we have protocols in place that can keep us relatively safe. There's no absolute safety, relatively safe. And if we follow them, chances are the ability or the possibility of contracting COVID-19 are greatly reduced. And we have the supplies that we did not have in March. Many of us have those supplies. So we need to be soberly and seriously concerned, but not panic. Yes. But this is the great challenge. In March, April, and May, particularly March and April, when people were ignorant of how all of this happened, then they were almost absolved of their behavior. Now, when we do know all this, they should be held accountable for their behavior Hmm. because the truth is, not to be melodramatic, it's simply the truth. If I do not do what the medical authorities are asking, I curtail what I want to do for the sake of my neighbor, I don't want to wear a mask. That's true, but you wear it anyway. I don't want to socially distance, but you do it anyway. If you don't do any of that, you can be a direct threat to the life of someone else. And you may not know it in your negligence, but the truth is when you stand before God, you will meet that person. And what will you say to that person? What yeah. will you say to that person? So, so I don't think it's a time to panic, but I think this is the time to resolve as believers to say we will continue to do what we need to do to protect people in our midst because the vaccines seem to be on their way. So yes. we're not going to do this forever, right? So can we not sprint to the finish line and bring as many as our sisters and brothers with us to the finish line as we can? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. All right, so uh, we will get back to uh, listener questions next week. Um, if you mm-hmm. are listening and you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in. You can send it in on the Veritas Network Catholic Network app. You can send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. You can find Bishop Frank Caggiano on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and Veritas Catholic Network is there as well. Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? Absolutely. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he continue to shine his face upon you and grant you his mercy. And may the Lord bless you with his enduring and lasting peace. And may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, my friend. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Excellency. See ya. God bless. God bless.